Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... Is there a credit score so low that if you don't tell your fiancé about it, that is an impediment to the validity <laughs> of the marriage? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Richard Budd, Director of Marriage and Family Life for the Diocese of Lansing. Richard, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm the Director of Marriage and Family for the Diocese of Lansing. I've been here for almost seven years. Before that, I actually worked in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. as a Director of Religious Education uh, for one of the local parishes there. I graduated with my master's degree from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family Life. And I'm married and have four children and one on the way. So there's uh, one boy, three girls, and uh, and a girl to come. Congratulations slash our prayers are with you for the impending added chaos. Yeah, that's about the only way to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Richard, you've done some work with, I mean, obviously marriage prep in general, but a specific model of marriage prep that, from what I understand, is sort of gaining wider application. It's gaining attention, for sure. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the marriage catechumenate and what that is? Sure. The marriage catechumenate is something that Pope Francis has really brought a lot of attention to. He talked about it quite a bit during the synods of the family. He didn't directly call it the marriage catechumenate in Amoris Laetitia, but what he described in the section on marriage preparation was kind of along those lines. But before Pope Francis brought it up, uh, Pope John Paul II called for a marriage preparation that imitated the catechumenate way back in 1981 in uh, Familiaris Consortio, his document on the family. And so basically what it is, is we try to take the the catechumenate, which is uh, the process of RCIA, and find inspiration in its goals and its methods and its outcomes for marriage preparation. And how is this different from the way marriage prep has been conventionally practiced outside of the marriage catechumenate model? For a lot of traditional marriage preparation, the goals and the the methods have really kind of been focused on intellectual formation, skills-based formation, making sure that the couple knows what the church teaches about the sacrament of matrimony. Maybe they've got um, some skills and communications and conflict resolution, things like that. You know, more and more we're seeing natural family planning be requirements for marriage preparation. But all of this was really kind of focused on making sure that the couple was ready to celebrate the sacrament validly, partially because the way that our world is kind of thinking about marriage and the goals that secular society has for marriage, sometimes one could argue would make it so that the couple wouldn't be ready to even celebrate the sacrament validly. So a lot of times goals for marriage preparation would just be to make sure that the couple is trained in a way that we could make valid marriages. What we try to do with the marriage catechumenate really is not only give the couple the skills and the knowledge that they need to enter into marriage uh, well-prepared, but also to remember what the sacrament of matrimony is for. It's really to form healthy marriages that can form healthy families that can form domestic churches. And so what we needed to help our couples do is to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And so a lot of our marriage preparation now is focused on helping the couple encounter Christ, to have their life in Christ deepened, and 
to also draw them into the larger life of the church so that they, they're not isolated from their local community. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're trying to live the spiritual life, the devil tries to isolate us and, and get us all by ourselves. So it's easier for him to work on us and divide us. Yeah, it sounds like in other models, the goal has been more to just make sure the couple's heads are above water yeah. on the day. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is about placing them in an oxygen-rich environment. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Okay, good. That kind of helps wrap my mind around the difference as somebody who hasn't gone through either. Mm-hmm. So I think you already touched on this a little bit, but what have been some past issues that have come up with other models of marriage prep? Well, I, I kind of hinted at it a little bit. The couple can become their own island within the parish that they just need to come in, meet with father, get their date, and then they get a checklist of things that they need to accomplish, whether or not that's through online programs or through programs that the diocese offers, retreats that the diocese offers. And as long as they can get their paperwork that says that they completed what they did, they can get married. Yeah, that isolating effect, it rings a bell for me because I know an experience of a lot of couples down the road after they get married, especially when they start having kids as they have to spend more and more of their time at home or at work and at home. And they lose that community, whether or not they're Catholic, Mm -hmm. they lose whatever community they had because the way that contemporary society is sort of set up, like our post-industrial world, is everybody sort of siloed in their household and... They don't have the resources that people had at their disposal in previous generations, extended family living close by, you know, stronger social ties through, you know, local institutions. So yeah, especially when, when you're raising young kids, you know, when you've been married five or 10 years, it feels like more and more people are getting isolated by that. Yeah, yeah, I would 100% affirm that our society is becoming more and more transient. And so like you pointed to the fact that people don't live near their extended family any longer. I mean, my wife and I live at least an hour and a half away from her family and my family. You know, everybody tells you, you know, you should go on a weekly date, you know, to keep your marriage strong. And it's like, well, who's going to watch my kids? (laughs) So one of the things that my wife and I did earlier in our marriage was we kind of laid out our, our family mission statement. And one of the things that we put on there was that we wanted to continue to develop our relationships with our extended family, but also to develop family-like relationships with people in our parish. Yeah. And so when we do need help with childcare or we do come upon a financial difficulty or something like that, we've got family all around us, even though we might not be blood related. It's our parish. I feel like the parish more and more can be the center for people to overcome this culture of isolation, but it's going to take work on both ends. You know, we got to, we got to form our couples to see it that way. And we also got to form our parishes to see it that way as well. When engaged couples nowadays are being introduced to the catechumenate and when they're starting to progress through it, what are some common areas of resistance that you've seen or that you've heard them giving? Mm -hmm. Partially, it depends on how we sell it, right? Because to accomplish what I kind of, I've talked about already, you know, more focus on spiritual formation, more sport focus on the affective formation. You're going to need to do them, have them do a little bit more than maybe the couples in the past have done. And so sometimes that's been a point of resistance is that maybe we're asking too much, but what we've found is 
uh, let, before I, I go any further, I want to back up and just say one of the things that we've done is we've also tried to make it a very flexible uh, model. Our, the RCIA is, is designed to be flexible depending on where the person is and their, their relationship with the Lord. And so if somebody's not ready to go through the right of election, you don't force them to go through the right of election. You give them some more time or you provide them some more resources or other people that they can talk to and, and kind of accompany them. And so one of the things that we tried to do was get away from language like contact us six months in advance or, or something like that. We didn't want to put a time frame of expectation on marriage preparation so that every couple that comes to us, we don't know what their time frame of marriage preparation will be until we meet them, until we get a sense of who they are and where they're at. And then we can kind of come up with a, a time frame that works for them. And so one of the things that we've we've kind of done to, to show the couples that this is a, a model of preparation that they can get behind is that really this model is designed to fit their needs. And so this isn't just something that we're trying to just run them through like a, a conveyor belt where maybe their older sister had that kind of uh, experience where it was just check the boxes and go through the conveyor belt and do the same thing that every other couple has done, even though every other couple is different than you, that this model really is, is trying to take them as persons and them as a couple seriously, that they have their own challenges and they have their own personalities and their own background and their own experiences. And, and we want to take that seriously as we develop and design a marriage preparation process that works for them that also, you know, has pillars that we have to mark off as, as we progress through the preparation process. That's an interesting point about the flexibility that's inherited from the RCIA. When I taught RCIA, most of the people in the class had some familiarity, you know, with Christianity already. Mm -hmm. But there was one woman who was raised Jewish and we were getting towards Christmas time. And she, she asked me after class, like, hey, what is the Christmas story like, what is the nativity, <laughs> which I was not expecting to hear. Like, yeah. I thought, you know, you know, there was one other person in class who could have taught half of it. Exactly. So, uh, so I had to be kind of Linus in the Peanuts uh, <laughs> Christmas Carol. Like, you know, that this is the meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. Uh -huh. And so anyway, that, that speaks to your point about couples not all coming from the same place and the catechumen having the ability to accommodate those different origins. Yeah. And I find like in, in the day and age of artisanal coffees and, you know, custom made homes and all this, people appreciate that. They're like, oh, you're actually going to do this with me in mind, you know, specifically. So even though the, in some cases we're asking couples to do a little bit more, if we can convince them that we're actually asking them to do that because we care about their marriage, most couples are, are, are okay with that, you know? Cool. It, it shows them that this is not a prefabricated thing that is being plopped in their lap. Yeah. So we, we just tell parishes like get all that kind of language about six months in advance or nine months in advance, get all that stuff off your bulletin, off your website, and just say, contact us as soon as you get engaged. I was going to say, you, you still got to get that in though, right? Like, no, 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 you do. It should be the you first want, thing you do. <laughs> you want couples to, to, to contact you. But, you know, one of the things that's kind of like, you know, it's it's the legend of the couple that comes to the parish and they've already got their date set and they already got the hall and everything. Well, it's because we told them not to contact us until six months before the wedding. So they started planning the wedding because they got engaged five months ago. And then they contacted us six months in advance. Well, now 
if we're telling them contact us as soon as you get engaged, we're maybe we able to get ahead of some of that. Not all of it, of course, but you know, my experience is only indirect through like people I know and stories I've heard of people in ministry. But I've gotten the sense that one thing that can come up is that some couples approach the church with kind of a rubber stamp attitude mm -hmm. that they want to have their church wedding and they know they need to jump through some kind of hoop in order to get it. And so that's all they want to do. And they don't want to go any deeper than that. Is that something that you've encountered? And is that something that the marriage catechumenate can uniquely approach? Yeah, of course. You know, they just this is just something that they got to get done. But two things. No couple comes to the church to get prepared for their wedding, uh, wanting to eventually get divorced. So if you can tell them, <laughs> hey, listen, we don't want you to get divorced either. And we've got a little bit of, you know, knowledge and experience about, you know, what types of things can lead to divorce. And we're going to try to prevent that. Uh, that's one thing. But the second thing is that we begin the marriage catechumenate. So every couple that comes, they meet with the pastor. Then when they're ready to begin the program, it begins with a charismatic retreat. And so if people aren't familiar with that word charismatic, it just means the preaching of the gospel. And this is really something that Pope Francis um, emphasized in Amoris Laetitia, is that marriage preparation should take on a charismatic character. And so one of the ways that we, re we responded to that was that Every couple goes through some sort of charismatic retreat or program. The, the model of being flexible, we also tried to apply to the parishes. And so uh, we didn't mandate one way or one program or one retreat. Um, we let the parishes kind of use uh, what works for them. So for some parishes, they use a, a retreat that we have here in the Diocese of Lansing. It's kind of a homegrown retreat called the Kerygma Encounter. But for other parishes that are like really big alpha parishes, they have their couples go through alpha, which, yeah, that's a big commitment that they ask their, their couples to take on. But those parishes actually saw conversions. I mean, they had... They had non-Catholic partners go through the Easter sacraments before the wedding took place. They made it work. Any sort of preaching of the gospel and a call to accept Jesus as the Lord of their life. Every couple that kind of experiences that, that's how they approach the rest of their, their marriage prep. So when they do their, their NFP or they do their theology of the body classes or their communications course, in the background of all of that is God's love for them and the miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection. Footnote, for listeners who are unfamiliar with the word kerygma, which is a Greek word spelled K-E-R-Y-G-M-A in English, which also has an adjective form, kerygmatic, uh, which you are hearing Richard use. But if you're unfamiliar with it, it's the core of the gospel. Basically, let me see if I can do this in a nutshell, Richard. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became man, lived an earthly life in his human nature, fully united to his divine nature preached, performed miracles, suffered, died to redeem humanity's sins and to enable us to live in communion with God, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven and reigns over heaven and earth. Is that, how's that for a kerygma? That's pretty good. I would only add two things. One, God created us because he loves us. Yes. Good. And two, we screwed it up. <laughs> and so he, he's got to, he, he comes to save us. And so just kind of a, an honest acknowledgement of our sin. Okay. I gave you 
half of a nutshell and rich <laughs> richard has provided the creation and fall part as necessary necessary completing context <laughs> all right so that that's what we mean when we say kerygma yeah, and yeah. tying these seemingly disparate elements like marriage or like particular obstacles to a happy marriage to that reality that abiding eternal reality is what these more charismatic elements of marriage prep try to do right yeah all of the sacraments are in some way a response to that you know to the gospel and so marriage isn't just something you do because you fell in love with her and you want to live the rest of your life with her christian marriage is really a response to the gospel and so we need to remind couples no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, we all need reminding. We need to remind couples of why they're even doing this in the first place. To be married in the Lord is a response to the gospel. And how are they going to live that gospel out in their vocation? You know, I think that's been something that's missing from the time that I've been hosting this podcast. We've, you know, we've covered a lot of different topics and I don't think we've tied them together to the heart of Jesus Christ well enough the way that this does. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's a very helpful reminder that the reason we're doing all of this is what the title suggests. We're made for love. We're made for the love who is God. And so, yeah, no, that's really helpful. And it's it's cool to see that played out in these practical ministerial settings. Yeah. And, and you know, if you think about it, every couple is is meant to form a domestic church in their home. And if you think about what is the full church, it's the bride and body of Christ. And so in some way, each family needs to be the bride and body of Christ. And so if you don't have a relationship with him, if you don't know what he wants for your life, that's going to be really hard to do or even want to do. My next question was about how the goal of the catechumen, it was distinct from previous versions of marriage prep, but I think you just answered it <laughs> right there. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Okay. What are three things that couples should talk about before getting engaged that they often don't? So I'm going to take as after the conversation we've had so far, I'm going to take that they should discuss their faith life as a given. I know a lot of couples may not talk about their faith life. So I'm going to include that, but I don't want it to count against my three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We can do more than three. The first thing, and I might surprise people because of how just how practical this is, you should discuss with each other how you plan to celebrate holidays. Holidays are very personal. They go to our deepest nostalgia, how we interact with family members. So what are going to be the expectations? Especially when one or both of you come from parents that might be separated or divorced. And so now instead of just like two families to fit Christmas in, you've got four families or three families or whatever the case might be. So don't put it off until you get married. Have that conversation. What is Christmas going to look like for us? Because especially earlier in your marriage, you're going to be celebrating your, your holidays with your families of origin. And so how are we going to celebrate it here at home? Are there particular traditions um, that I want to celebrate? You know, I know for a lot of Catholic families, the celebration of St. Nicholas Day on December 6th, you know, with the, with the shoes and the candy and the shoes and things like that. Did you celebrate that in your family growing up? Uh, would, you, would, would you be interested in that? Just I find holidays can be so personal. And they can be the source of a lot of stress and anxiety for families if 
if a plan hasn't been worked out. So that'd be my, my first thing that you should be talking about. The second thing is, is how much debt you're in. If you're about to get married, man, the checkbook should be open to, to the other person. You know, you should be, if you're going to combine lives, you should be combining everything, home, finances. I know this might be a little controversial to say, but I say one marriage, one checkbook. Finances can be a way for division to kind of seep into the, into the marriage. And so part of that conversation is going to be debt. So how much credit card debt do you have? How much student loans do you have? Do you have, do you already have a mortgage, you know, car loans, everything, everything should be on the table. You should just be honest with each other about your financial situation. Is there a credit score so low that if you don't tell your fiance about it before you get married, that is an impediment to the validity of the marriage? (laughs) I'm not a canon lawyer, so I'm not going (laughs) to venture to answer that question, but you know, I, I think that that could be, you know, more seriously. I do think that if, you, if you're if you in a really serious financial uh, situation and you don't disclose that to your partner, that could that could impact the freedom of, of the, the other person to give their consent. Right. No, that, I, I mean, I was mostly kidding, but like that's a valid concern that you're that you're bringing up, because when I consent to marry my hypothetical wife, I have to have a good idea of who she is mm-hmm. and the aspects of her life that determine how she lives her day-to-day life. And finances are part of that. If you got a secret $50,000 credit card you know, debt uh, that you're not saying, that goes to speak to maybe your character yeah. and that they would want to know about that. So the point behind this one, the second one is just, you have to be radically honest with each other. And building that habit now will pay dividends into the marriage when honesty can be difficult. So disclose debt. And then finally, I would say issues surrounding children. The word matrimony itself, it means having to do with motherhood. And so children are not just a kind of a part of what it means to to be married. They're the reason for marriage. And so you need to be able to discuss not only how many children you hope to have, but also how would you react if infertility became part of your marriage? How would you handle that, that particular cross? But then also just things like parenting styles. You know, you need to be clear on what is your position on allowances or finishing your plate at dinner, you know, all, all those like little, like different things that different families handle differently. You need to be clear on, um, because again, you don't want to get a few years in your marriage. You've got a two-year-old and your husband or your wife disciplines that two-year-old in a way that you're really uncomfortable with. Now you're in a situation where the, the conversation gets a lot harder because it's not abstract anymore. It can get really um, personal and, and, and feelings can get hurt and things like that. So discuss children, everything around it. What method of natural family planning are you going to choose? Like I say this to, to guys all the time. Natural family planning is not just her thing to figure out. Right. You should know how the chart works. <laughs> you should <laughs> you should be part of filling out the chart. You don't have an excuse any longer to not understand how babies come into the world. Parenting is a two-person job. And so you can't just put it all in one person. And if you need any help broaching those subjects, we already have episodes on both infertility in episode 76 and 77 and natural family planning in episode 69. 
So we're making it easier for you to have these conversations. All right, go look up those episodes. Okay, so we've added a lot of stuff to how people approach marriage. Let's take something off people's shoulders. What's one thing that couples should not worry about that they often do? Okay, so I know there's going to be something people are going to hear and they're just going to say, yeah, right. Experience is, is speaking into this. You're planning your wedding. The thing that gives most people don't even like think that much about the liturgy. All of the stress and money and, and planning goes into the reception. And that's good and that's fine. But as you're planning your reception, think about the things that are going to last from the day. Maybe it's your pictures or your videographer, you know, your, your wedding video, or maybe it's the experiences of having a good, having good music. So a good DJ or band or whatever. Don't spend a lot of money or stress figuring out things that people are going to forget about. Um, you know, the one, that, one thing that I always use as an example is what you serve for dinner. I cannot tell you anything that I've ever had for dinner at somebody's wedding. I mean, <laughs> I can remember that, oh, I, it might've been good, but I don't remember what I had. I don't even remember what I served at my own wedding. So <laughs> don't, don't stress out about that kind of stuff, you know, feed people. But, you know, some of the weddings I've had the most memorable time were just kind of the local, like Polish ladies caterer that just kind of brought in like pierogies. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Rather than the, the really fancy banquet hall. And it, because it was, it was more about the experience of the day and, and enjoying people's company and celebrating the couple and the gift of love and the gift of matrimony, than it is about getting every detail right or making sure, you know, the centerpieces are correct or, you know, all that kind of uh, the details. I know I tend to be more of a big picture thinker than a details guy. So maybe that's just one person's opinion. But I think you want to spend your time and your money on things that are going to last from the day rather than things that, you know, they're there for the day and then they're gone. I was at a wedding reception a couple of years ago and I was at a table with a woman who had been married, I think like five years or so. And I asked her, what do you remember from your wedding? And she said, I, I got married, I think. I don't remember. <laughs> you know, I remember like three or four things from my wedding. I remember <laughs> kind of a really emotional moment between my wife and her father. I remember that my mother and I, our dance together, uh, we started off kind of as a slow dance and it turned into kind of a uh, evolution of dance style um, <laughs> uh, performance. And then I just remember people out on the dance floor. You know, I don't really remember what I ate. I think we served, I think we had a, I think we had an open bar, but I can't barely even remember that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you probably did if you're having trouble remembering. Exactly. That's probably why it was an open bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's helpful because I think that will be helpful for us going forward because we will also be having a separate episode devoted just to wedding planning distinct from marriage prep. All right. Well, I think we can leave it there for now. Richard, this has been extraordinarily helpful, and I'm not even getting married anytime soon. So <laughs> thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Today's episode is a little bit shorter than normal, but Kara will be back with our second segment in the next episode when we return to our regular episode schedule on January 28th. In the meantime, it would be a huge help to us if you told your friends about this podcast, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Bye now and God love you.